0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series with Dr. Newfeld entitled Celebrating the Word of God. So let's begin now with a study on the sufficiency of scripture based off of our text in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29.
1: Most of us know, when we pick up and read our Bible, that it's a book in which the revelation of God is given progressively. What we mean by that is that the Bible does not declare everything at once. Let me provide an easy example of that. The Bible begins with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then just one sentence later, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We're not told who the Spirit of God is. Is he different than the God who created the heavens and the earth? Well, that text doesn't say. And then in verse 26 of the first chapter of our Bible, God speaks in the creation by saying, let us create man in our image. Why does God address himself? And who are the us that he's talking about? Again, the text is silent and we're left with questions. Well, those of us who are know our Bible well may point out that in terms of later revelation, that is good and right for God to address himself. After all, God is one in his essential being, and in that one essential being, he eternally exists as three distinct persons. Ah, but that revelation comes so much later, and that revelation only comes about as we pore over the text of the New Testament and try to coherently understand what was written. There is nothing of that in the beginning of Genesis, only a statement of God speaking to himself by using the plural. Now, I point that out because when we come to Genesis 12, in which God appears to a man named Abram and calls him to make a decisive break from his culture, his people, and his religion, causes him to go on a pilgrimage that will change the world. And from all we know of Abram and the culture in which he came, we do know that his ancestors were polytheists, who probably worshipped the sun and the moon and the other forces of nature as deities. And as we continue to read through Genesis and then into Exodus and beyond, we find that the children of Abraham constantly struggle with something called idolatry and the belief that there might, in fact, be more than one God. And against this view comes the rather plain teaching of the Bible, often referred to as the Shema, or a passage that actually comes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It simply says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you can only imagine the confusion if at the beginning God had revealed himself as Trinity. In a culture where the idea of only one God was foreign, indeed countercultural, there could be no discussion of the triune nature of this one God. That would only come slowly. Israel needed to learn about the eternal nature of this one God, his eternal wisdom, his immutability, and that is that he is changeless, unlike the changing and shifting gods and goddesses of the cultures all around them. And that's what we mean when we say that the Bible presents us with a progressive revelation. One truth is spoken, and then it's reinforced, before we're ready for the next truth or revelation to be added in many ways. Israel was educated much in the way a child is educated today. You can't learn the quadratic formula in math until you learn the basics of numbers and of addition and subtraction and multiplication. One truth must be added to another before you're ready for a deeper and more advanced truth. Now, I say all of that because today I'm speaking about the sufficiency of the Bible. And by that, I mean that the Bible contains all the words and thoughts and doctrines and commands that God intended His people to know and hear at each stage of history. Of course, Abraham didn't know what we know today, but he knew all that God intended for him to know in his time period. The same can be said of the time of Moses and of David and, and so forth. Let's consider a very important verse. Deuteronomy 29:29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So let's consider that thought. There are some secret things that belong to God and have not been revealed to us. Let me address that from two perspectives. First, the Bible is not a book about everything. You probably know that. It's not a book about science, and although every time it addresses something scientific, it can be trusted. But for instance, when the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the earth was formless and void, it doesn't provide us with any data about the atmospheric conditions at that time or, or about the temperature of the earth or to what extent light was able to penetrate to this planet. Nothing but one statement. You know, we might be curious wanting to know more, but God in his wisdom gave no further revelation on this matter. One statement, that's it. Furthermore, the Bible says nothing about the place of the earth in the solar system. It doesn't describe DNA or or most physical laws. We learn nothing of quantum physics or the principles of gravity. God in his wisdom did not reveal that in his word. But when Deuteronomy tells us that the secret things belong to our God, I don't think it's talking about scientific laws. You know, as a pastor, I was often asked questions not discussed in the Bible. So, for instance... You know, what did God do before he created the universe? Or what language did Adam and Eve speak? Or are there pets in heaven? And I'd always say, well, I don't know. I mean, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. He, in his wisdom, has not told us everything about everything. But, says Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, that the things revealed belong to us and to our children. And that would mean that God has decided to let us in on some of the things that he knows. And whatever he has decided to reveal is intended for us. So we can say that at each stage in the history of our salvation, God told his people all they needed at that time. So at the time of the death of Moses, God had revealed the contents of the first five books of our Bible, books we commonly call the Pentateuch or the law. Had God wanted them to know more at that time, or if it had been necessary for them to know more, he would have revealed more. But in his wisdom, God knew exactly what was needed for his people to know and have at that very point in time. Indeed, God effectively said that much. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God which I command you. Now that formula, not to add or subtract from the word, is repeated twice more, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, and then in chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. The idea is that Israel should study the revelation that was given, and were to understand its implication for their lives and their corporate existence as a nation, but they were not to speculate or add their own version to it. Now, by the time we come to the end of the New Testament, God revealed his final word to us in Christ, as we have already seen in this series, especially when we looked at Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, that with the revelation of Jesus, which, by the way, makes up our New Testament, the canon of the Bible, or the written revelation of God, was completed. That means that God has now given us, until the second coming of Christ, all that is necessary for knowing God, knowing the gospel, maintaining a life of holiness, and knowing God's will. The Bible is sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. We don't need anything else. God has revealed to us all that he intended for us to know in order to trust him perfectly and to live for him eternally. Now, how do we apply that? Well, does that mean we shouldn't read other books or listen to sermons or ask questions about the things revealed? Well, let me see if I can make some practical application. I'm going to give five points of application. Here's the first of them. The Bible contains all we need for every Christian doctrine. You know, when I did a series on heaven, I started by making a statement. I was going to talk about heaven, I said then, and when I did, I was not going to discuss the revelation of someone who claimed to have been dead for 13 minutes and then came back to reveal to us what heaven was all about. Sure, there are, are things about heaven that are not revealed in the Bible, probably a lot of things, but the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us and to our children as well. See, the same is true about a whole host of other issues, whether we're talking about the the doctrine of God or the nature of Christ or questions about salvation or the importance of the life of holiness or what is the Trinity or the sovereignty of God in all things, or what Jesus actually accomplished for us on the cross, or justification by faith, or the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, or the nature and governance of the church. And how about the doctrine of end times and the second coming of Christ? Well, the Bible tells us everything God wants us to know about those questions. There is not one problem regarding our life in relationship to God that God does not answer in the Scripture. You see, that's what we mean when we say the sufficiency of Scripture. All that is needed for life and godliness has been given to us. God withheld nothing that was there for our own good. Now, when we come back, we'll see more applications to the truth of the sufficiency of the Bible.
0: Do you believe that the Bible is totally sufficient in every area for living a godly life? Well, this topic is such a critical one for believers to grasp and apply today. Even within the church, there's a tendency to stray from this doctrine when we place emphasis on not teaching and proclaiming the full counsel of God's Word. Yet from this introduction, we can clearly see that to honor God, we must honor and abide by what He has revealed to us in the Bible. When we come back, Dr. Newfeld will uncover four more ways that we can know the Bible is sufficient.
2: Recently, Sarah called to share. I've been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl in fact, and Back to the Bible has been part of my life ever since. Since then, I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life There is depth, yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology while ensuring the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. Thank you, Sarah. To know the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is making a difference is a great encouragement. We'd love to hear from you as well. The Word of God is powerful and we're privileged to teach its truth every day. To touch base, to receive information, or to offer your financial support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca
1: We know that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. If you're a farmer and wanting a more productive yield on your crops, or if you're an investor looking to maximize your profits, or if you're an athlete looking for techniques to make you stronger and faster, I suspect you won't find a lot of Bible verses to help you. But the Bible does provide us with everything that we need to know on every single relevant point of Christian doctrine in life. Follow its precepts, and you will know everything, everything for what we need in life and godliness. But what about other helpful books? You know, I, for one, strongly encourage Christians to read good Christian literature, because when it's good literature, it will help us get a deeper understanding of what God has said in Scripture. But here's the next truth about the sufficiency of the Bible. No other book is equal to that of the Bible. I might add that we do well to judge all that we read in Christian literature and all that we hear by the Bible. The same is true of any vision a person might see, or any sermon that you might hear, or for that matter, any experience that we might have. The Bible, and not our experience, has the final word. Let me go back to my illustration about heaven again. You know, some time ago, a good Bible teacher challenged a popular book of a man who had claimed that he had gone into heaven. The Bible teacher pointed out that there were a number of unbiblical teachings in this experiential book about the man who claimed to have gone to heaven and then come back. You know, I was astonished that there were those who responded by saying, Yeah, but, 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 but this man actually went to heaven, and that is what he saw. But here is the point. A personal experience or vision is not equal to the Bible. The Bible is sufficient in our knowledge of heaven, and that brings me to a third point of application about the sufficiency of Scripture. I am not required to believe or obey that which is not found in the Bible. Now, some of you may have heard me use this illustration before, and it bears repeating. The Swiss Reformation began when a man named Ulrich Zwingli and a group of others sat down to eat, yep, sausages, an event that set off a firestorm. The church in that day was very clear about what could and could not be eaten during Lent, the period immediately preceding Easter. As a sign of sorrow for the death of Christ, self-denial in many things, including diet, was required. But, said Zwingli, if we held only to the Scripture, then only when the Bible commands something am I required by God to obey it. And when it makes no command, I am free to decide whether I will keep a human tradition or not. And Swingley was right. If the scripture does not command it, I might still exercise my freedom and keep a given tradition, but I may not be condemned if I exercise my freedom and help myself to sausages. Jesus, you will remember, would say amen to that. So let me read from Mark 7, 1 to 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, here we see an important test case. Traditions well-established by respected elders were being violated. The real question was, what would Jesus do? Would he tell his disciples that for the sake of peace, and because this was but a small issue, they should simply conform to this tradition? Well, he might have. And there really would have been nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But Jesus saw something larger at stake. Let's hear his answer in Mark 7, 6 to 8. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, watch this, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the commandments of men. You see, Jesus saw something insidious happening. Whenever we make human traditions as important as Scripture, we are in effect saying that the Bible is not complete, that it is not sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. And that's the point. Let me give a painful illustration. Alcohol. And to be clear, I for one drink no alcohol at all. Just thought you'd know that. I'll not go into the details of why this is my personal principle, and yes, I do know that the Bible demands that we do not become drunk, and that we take care that we not be mastered by anything. So if you have a tendency to alcoholism or excess, might I suggest that you become as I am. But I cannot command anyone to refrain from alcohol because no such command is found in Scripture, and if God thought such a command was necessary, He would have included it. See, the Bible is sufficient for all we need for life and godliness, for doctrine, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Unless there's a specific teaching in Scripture, or we can demonstrate a genuine principle of Scripture, which would prohibit an activity, unless we can show that, we are free to decide whether we should obey or not. And that includes the clothing we wear. Now, it is true that women should dress in modesty, and ladies, might I insist on that? But I remember being criticized on clothing I wore into the pulpit. My custom was to wear a good dress pant and shirt, a sports coat, but but no tie. And that was my choice. And by the way, I think I look good. And and I had a critic who thought a tie was essential to godliness. And all I said to my critic was, suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) Now, if God were concerned over neckties, he would have written it in the text. And that leads me to also stress the opposite side of the equation. I am required to believe or obey that which is found in the Bible. See, if the Bible commands women to dress modestly, then you are required in a culturally sensitive way to do just that. If God demands that I refrain from crude jesting and immoral talk, I am to do just that. For in His infinite wisdom, God has included those things that I need for life and godliness. I have no liberty at all to disobey a command of God. But this now leads me to the final point about the sufficiency of Scripture. I am required to emphasize those things the Bible emphasizes. There are so many things the Bible is silent about, and sometimes you and I might find that frustrating. I know this is not always the case, but it often is. Sometimes the greatest areas of disagreement among believers surround those areas in which the Bible has no given clear word or where there is no clear emphasis or principle. Sometimes we make much of a minor doctrinal disagreement, and if we're honest, we might find that the Bible itself doesn't speak extensively to an issue that we want it to speak extensively to. You know, there might be only a few references to the matter, and those references might not be as clear as we wanted them to be. And that sometimes happens around discussions, let's say, around eschatology or the doctrine of last things. What is the true identity of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel or Revelation? Or sometimes in discussions revolving the ordinances. You know, to what extent is Christ actually present in the bread and the cup? Now, I've personally written on that subject, but I must admit there is less on that issue than we might want there to be. See, in moments like that, we need to admit that the Bible really is sufficient. It has given us all that we need for life and godliness. It may not answer all our questions because God, in His infinite wisdom, has chosen not to reveal everything. The secret things really do belong to the Lord our God, and perhaps we'll explore more of those things in eternity. But we must fascinate ourselves with the things revealed now. We need to learn to understand them and believe them and obey them. The Bible really is sufficient for all that we need, for faith, for salvation, for life and godliness. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you knew exactly what we needed and you gave us exactly what we needed. Thank you that your word is sufficient for all that we need. Amen.
0: Dr. John, another great message and something we need to hear. But one of the questions people might be thinking is, well, what do we do about the stuff that's not in the Bible? Like it doesn't speak directly about abortion or euthanasia. Or So how do we come to believe what God would have us do in those things?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are always issues that we need to face and that we take from the Bible principles. You know, one of the things I, I did say, Ben, is that you know, both a clear teaching or a principle that's there. I mean, one of the principles that we find in the Bible is the principle of the value of human life created in the image of God, and to take human life is a sin against the Creator. So with that principle, we begin to apply that and say, how does that actually impact the way we think about human life when it's still in the uterus, or the way in which we think about end-of-life issues? uh, What does human life actually entail? So the Bible gives us principles, and those principles help us to work out those details in our life and culture.
0: There are many relevant things that we can take away from learning about the sufficiency of Scripture. As Christians, we need to base our lives and our faith on what the Bible says. But not only that, to be able to understand rightly what it says. It's not only tragic but misleading when we begin to doubt God's Word or to allow other things such as human traditions and wisdom to be above it. I hope that today's lesson has been a blessing to you as we begin to wrap up this series with Dr. Newfeld. So join us tomorrow for a final message as we look at the inerrancy of the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Next week, in fact, for the next four weeks, we're excited to announce that Dr. Newfell will be teaching the last volume in his series on the book of Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. The final four weeks containing 20 new messages will focus on the study of Revelations chapter 18 to 22. So much to be discussed, so much that provides for us an understanding of God's plan for believers, for a new heaven and a new earth, and our eternity in the presence of God. And while the Revelation series is airing, We want to make the volume four available to you for only $19 or an exclusive package of the entire four volume 80 message revelation series, The Triumph of the Lamb for only $75 and either option includes shipping and handling. So to receive your very special offer or to support the ministry with a donation, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at
1: backtothebible.ca.